Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses. One of the most profound passages in the whole Bible. Holy Scripture says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this life-giving word that you have given for our nourishment, for our transformation, that we might know you, walk with you faithfully and worship you in a way that is pleasing in your sight. And Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come and transform us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has been walking with the Lord for several decades. Sometime before he was 75 years old, he received 
the call of God while he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans to go forth to a place that the Lord would show him. And when Abraham turned 75, he left Haran and made the journey to Canaan. And when he was 86, he had Ishmael. And when he was 100 years old, he had Isaac back in Genesis chapter 21. Since Genesis chapter 12, Abraham has been walking with the Lord for four decades. He's a seasoned believer. Through all kinds of circumstances, Abraham has learned to trust God and obey God and stay the course. And Abraham's life has been punctuated with deliberate acts of worship. Genesis chapter 12 verses 5 to 8 emphasizes that once Abraham arrived in Canaan, he built altars to the Lord in two different places and called upon the name of the Lord. And then prior to Genesis chapter 22, at the end of chapter 21, where we learn that Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines, we learned there in verse 33 that Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And so these two passages, Genesis 12, Genesis 21, kind of bracket for us Abraham's life in the greater Canaanite region. And that life of his was characterized by worship. Worshiping God was the foundation and framework for Abraham's life. Abraham was an obedient and faith-filled man who worshiped the Lord. As we follow in Abraham's footsteps, worshiping the Lord and obeying the Lord's instruction, we can also expect to be tested at times. These tests test the quality of our heart. Is our faith genuine? Have we matured? Have we made progress on the path of discipleship? Do we truly love the Lord more than we love anyone or anything else? Specific concrete tests bring the inner workings of our heart to the surface and reveal what is really there. If we have a heart for God, the test will make it clear. But if we are stuck on ourselves and only treat God like a useful genie to get what we want, then the test will expose that ugliness. First, in verses 1 and 2, God tests Abraham. God is the one who does the testing. God is the examiner. He creates the test, hands out the test to the student, and grades the student's work. It's very important to differentiate testing from tempting. A well-known verse in James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The point is that God does not tempt or entice his people to sin. God does not seek to allure or draw people into wickedness. And God God is obviously not tempting Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. But testing is a very different matter. God tests and examines Abraham in order to bring the condition of Abraham's heart to light. The test is not designed to lead Abraham into sin, but to prove whether or not he is the kind of person who will obey the Lord at all costs. After uh, getting Abraham's attention in verse 1, God gives the instruction in verse 2. And, and just, just verse 2 is worthy of extensive meditation. 
God is instructing Abraham to slaughter his son Isaac as a burnt offering, as a, as a sacrifice, an act of worship to the Lord. And this instruction is striking for several reasons. First, God calls attention to the preciousness of Isaac to Abraham. Isaac is Abraham's son, his only son, his beloved son. Technically, Isaac is not Abraham's only son, for Abraham also fathered Ishmael. But since Ishmael was not the son of promise, and since Abraham had to cast out Ishmael from his household a few years earlier, back in chapter 21, going forward, it was as if Ishmael was no longer Abraham's son. As far as God's promise was concerned, and as far as Abraham's functioning household was concerned, Isaac was his only son. And God instructed to lay on the altar that which was uniquely precious and beloved to him. Do you trust God enough to offer to him your most dearly beloved? Second, in the background to this instruction, we remember that Isaac is the son of promise. A Abraham's childlessness and Sarah's barrenness had cast a shadow over their entire lives. God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's offspring, but Abraham had no offspring, and the years kept ticking by. Abraham thought that a servant in his household, Eliezer, would be his heir. But God said, no, a son will be your heir. But the years ticked by and there was no son. And so Abraham and Sarah decided to get creative and take matters into their own hands. And Abraham had Ishmael with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And Abraham got to thinking that Ishmael was the promised son who would be his heir. And God said, no. Ishmael shall not be your heir, but a son that will be born to you from Sarah. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Therefore, think about this. Isaac literally embodies God's promise to provide Abraham and Sarah with an heir. God instructed Abraham to lay on the altar that which embodied the very promise of God. Do you trust God enough to give back to him the promised gift that he himself gave you. Who do you love more? The God who gave the gift or the gift that he gave? Third, some people may struggle with the fact that God instructed Abraham to kill his son as an act of worship. Of course, once we get the full account in view, along with later scripture, which clearly condemns child sacrifice, we can be confident that God will never command any of us to slaughter our child. But the fact remains that God did command Abraham to slaughter his son, and Abraham fully intended to obey God's instruction, and Abraham is commended for having been resolved to obey God's instruction. So we have to be honest about the fact that God's instruction to Abraham is, is right. It's right. Everything that God does is right. And the simplest way to explain this is by taking to heart that God alone has sovereign authority over all life. As the sovereign creator, God has the right to give life 
and take it away. He has the right to sustain life and withdraw it at any time and for any reason, and he owes no one any justification for his decision. So long as a man is truly operating under God's specific authorization, the man is justified to do whatever God has authorized him to do. The reason why it is right for God to take life whenever he chooses and why it is wrong for us to take life without divine authorization is because God is sovereign over all flesh, all breath, all life, and we are not. Fourth, it is interesting to place the instruction uh, in chapter 22 alongside the first command that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12. Genesis 12:1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Chapter 22, verse 2. Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Genesis 12:1 and 22:2 have at least two things in common. First, Abraham had to prioritize the call of God over family relationships, over his kindred and father's house in chapter 12, over his beloved son Isaac in chapter 22. And second, Abraham would be shown more information about where he was to go after he started his journey. To the land that I will show you in chapter 12, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you in chapter 22. It is as if the test in Genesis 22 is designed to reveal if Abraham is still on the path of discipleship that had begun 10 chapters and 40 years earlier. The imperative of discipleship is always the same. Follow me. In other words, follow the Lord and prioritize His call upon your life over every other desire or demand. The instruction to offer Isaac as a burnt offering continues the scriptural theme from Genesis chapter 4 onward that God has ordained that human beings worship him through a blood sacrifice. Abel brought up the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, Genesis 4.4. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, Genesis 8.20. In Genesis chapter 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, The the very presence of God passed through the broken pieces of the animals that had been sacrificed. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, the whole chapter is devoted to instruction about burnt offerings. Whether a bull or sheep or goat or turtle dove or pigeon, the animal was to be slaughtered, drained of blood, and then burned on the altar. Through the burnt offering, the worshiper offered something of value to the Lord. Atonement was made for the worshiper, and the Lord was satisfied with the pleasing aroma. Worship that pleases God is not a matter of lip service. It's not a matter of going through the motions. It's not a matter of giving Him our leftovers. The Lord God Almighty doesn't need anything from us, but His incomparable worth demands our very best offerings, an unblemished bull or unblemished lamb, or to raise the stakes considerably, a man's beloved and only son. Worship is not play. We must approach God on His terms, not ours, and with the sacrifice that He requires, not one that our own wisdom has devised. The test has been given. We await Abraham's response. Tellingly, verses 3 to 10, 
focused on Abraham's obedience. And very tellingly, Abraham obeys the Lord straight away. It is important to call attention to the fact that the text does not delve into the inner workings of Abraham's heart and mind. We might assume that Abraham's heart was torn and stretched to the breaking point, but the emphasis in the text is Abraham's obedience, not his internal deliberations, whatever they might have been. And this emphasis on Abraham's obedience is very instructive for us. We live in a sentimental, hyper-emotional age. And if I took 15 minutes to speculate about Abraham's internal thought processes, many people in our society would think, oh, that's wonderful and so insightful. But as far as the text is concerned, Abraham's emotional life is besides the point except the rather obvious fact that he wasn't ruled by his emotions. He was ruled by the Word of God. And that meant walking in obedience. There's no delay on Abraham's part. Abraham rose early in the morning, verse 3, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Assuming that Moriah was in the area that would eventually be named Jerusalem, It would have been about 50 miles north of Beersheba, so it makes sense that Abraham and those with him would have have arrived in the land of Moriah on the third day, as we we see in verse 4. And at this point, the mountain could be seen from afar, and Abraham did not want to take the two young men to accompany him and Isaac any further. What had to take place on Mount Moriah had to be a, a private scene with father and son in the presence of the Lord, with no one else around. So Abraham said to his young men in verse 5, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. By the way, the word translated boy does not uh, necessarily mean young boy. In fact, this word boy was used to refer to Ishmael in chapter 21, and Ishmael was at least 17 years old. So this word that's translated boy, it can refer to a boy or a youth or a young man. Uh, I, would, I would reckon that uh, Isaac was at least the age of 10 and perhaps much older. He was obviously old enough for the wood of the burnt offering to be laid up on his back and for him to walk and carry it uh, with him. Now what Abraham says to his two servants in verse 5 is very important. Abraham says, I and the boy, and the next three verbs are all written in the first person plural. So the sense is, we, Isaac and I, Isaac and I, we will go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Exactly how Abraham envisioned returning to the young men with Isaac after he had slaughtered Isaac is not made clear in Genesis chapter 22. But we get additional insight in Hebrews chapter 11, which says, Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, on the one hand, Abraham knew that God had promised that he would establish his covenant with Isaac. 
There was no way that God was going to fail to keep that promise. On the other hand, Abraham knew that God had told him to offer up Isaac on the altar. So how, how would God keep his promise to establish his covenant with a living Isaac after Isaac died? Abraham thought, by raising him from the dead. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. If you believe that God created the world and everything in it out of nothing, by his own powerful word, then it's a straightforward logical application to believe that God can bring a dead person back to life. The point in all this is that Abraham was walking in obedience by faith, trusting all of God's promises and obeying all of God's instructions. Abraham was not despairing, but had confidence that God would keep his promises and God would work out all the details. Great lesson for us. Obey the Lord and trust him to work out the details. By faith, Abraham was offering to God the act of worship that he had commanded. I and the boy will go over there and worship. That word worship literally means bow down. We will go over there and we will bow down before the sovereign Lord and honor him in the way that he has instructed. The father-son relationship comes to the fore in verses 6 to 8. Abraham and Isaac take leave of the other two young men and the donkey. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. It's obvious to Isaac that he and his father are heading to the mountain to worship the Lord with a burnt offering, but Isaac wonders, uh, where is the animal for the sacrifice? Isaac doesn't know what Abraham knows. Isaac doesn't know that he is supposed to be the sacrifice. Abraham hasn't told him yet, and Abraham doesn't tell him here either. And Isaac said to his, to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb? What a great question. Abraham said, in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham is speaking with great restraint, discretion, and wisdom here. Basically, Abraham is inviting Isaac to join him in trusting the Lord. In the context of Genesis chapter 22 and the related passage in Hebrews 11, which I read a moment ago, there's no reason to think that Abraham expected the Lord to provide another lamb in Isaac's place. As far as Abraham knew, Isaac was the lamb. Abraham fully expected to sacrifice God's appointed lamb, Isaac, on the mountain, but Abraham was not ready to break that news to Isaac. So he simply encourages Isaac to trust God. God presides over the burnt offering, and he will provide. Great, great parental wisdom there, by the way. In the absence of all the information, inviting your children to join you in trusting God. Thus oriented to trust the Lord, they pressed on to their destination, verse 8. And at some point, after verse 8 and in the midst of verse 9, Abraham somehow communicated to Isaac that he was the burnt offering. It must have been a breathtaking moment. But Scripture is not interested in narrating that interaction. Once again, the emphasis falls on Abraham's obedience. Simple, heartfelt obedience is the matter of great consequence from God's perspective. And so, verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son 
and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham, the man of God, stood before the altar, and Isaac, the beloved son, an embodiment of God's promise, lay bound on the altar, and the sacrifice was ready to be made. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham was resolved to not withhold his only son, but to offer him up as a sacrifice for God. Abraham was all in. It is crucial to be all in. Jesus said, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. If the one that Abraham loved more, the Lord, demanded that he give up the one he loved less, Isaac, then Abraham would not delay to give it. The knife was ready to fall. Now, moving to verses 11 and 12, when it was obvious beyond all doubt that Abraham was totally resolved to do what was required of him, the Lord forestalled the slaughter. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. As a side note, by the way, it is because of passages like this that many Bible teachers think that the angel of the Lord is a reference to the pre-incarnate Son of God, because notice that the angel of the Lord speaks as if he is equal to God. God is the one who had instructed Abraham to offer up Isaac, but the angel of the Lord says, you have not withheld Isaac from me. So the angel of the Lord shares divine status with Yahweh. Even so, the the primary point of verse 12 is that Abraham passed the test. Abraham's full-hearted obedience had been brought to the surface with great clarity. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac and trust God with the future was beyond dispute. Abraham's fear of God was revealed in clear daylight, and given that Abraham had passed the test, there was no reason for Isaac to actually be sacrificed. And so having in principle entrusted Isaac to the Lord, the Lord gave Isaac back to his father. Verse 12 teaches us something very important about fearing God. Fearing God doesn't mean to be paralyzed with crippling fear when you think of God. Abraham obviously wasn't paralyzed. Instead, fearing God means that you are overwhelmed with the majesty and splendor of Almighty God. One, one Bible teacher refers to the fear of God as awed trust, standing in awe of God and trusting Him. Fearing God means being irresistibly drawn to His ways and being repelled by the deceitful promises of sin. And fearing God means that you love Him more than anyone or anything else. If you fear God, You would rather follow God in costly obedience than to look for an easy way out. There is no easy way out if you're going to walk with God because God's claim upon you is total. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, the Lord Jesus said. Regarding the phrase, now I know that you fear God, although God already knew the depths of Abraham's heart, and God already knew how the future would unfold, 
Here, God is speaking to Abraham in real time in a moment of fellowship between God and Abraham. And this is a moment of God commending Abraham with a clear word of divine approval in response to Abraham's actual obedience. So Isaac's life was spared. But even though Isaac's life was spared, it was still God's intent for Abraham to worship him through a burnt offering. Therefore, God provided a substitutionary ram in Isaac's place. Abraham lifted up, and there was a ram caught in the thickets. And he offered that ram as a burnt offering in place of his son Isaac, as verse 13 tells us. What a beautiful picture of God's provision. The ram is offered in Isaac's place. The sheep dies, but Isaac lives. Finally, in light of God's provision, Abraham names the place where this remarkable substitutionary sacrifice was provided. Notice that Abraham is not assigning a new name to the Lord, but rather he's assigning a name to the place, to Mount Moriah. And this place he called the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh or many of you would be familiar with Jehovah-Jireh. That's this place. This place is called, this Mount Moriah is called Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. And after telling us that Abraham named the place, the Lord will provide, the Holy Spirit-inspired editor of the book of Genesis included an editorial comment that highlights the abiding significance of the place that Abraham had named. As it is said to this day, hundreds of years later, among the children of Israel, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What shall be provided? The sacrifice that the Lord requires. Who shall provide it? The Lord. Where shall it be provided? On the mount of the Lord. And why is it provided? So that the people called by the Lord's name can worship the Lord in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Now this passage teaches us two vitally important lessons. They are complementary lessons that belong together. The first one is about discipleship and the second one is about worship. Let's first consider the discipleship lesson. If we would truly walk with the Lord, then our devotion to Him must be un reserved and unqualified. The initial call up on Abraham in Genesis 12 to leave behind native land and extended family in order to become the blessed man who puts God first is reinforced in chapter 22. Abraham must not allow anything, not even the love he has for his son, to interfere with his devotion to the Lord. Trusting God, fearing God, loving God means obeying Him no matter what the cost and not withholding anything from Him. The, the basic lesson about discipleship is a straightforward application of the first two of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods and worship the Lord only. The same lesson flows from Jesus' articulation of the greatest commandment that we should love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. When Jesus invited people to become his disciples, he made it clear that he alone was to have first place in their hearts and lives, outweighing all other loyalties and relationships. The Apostle Paul understood this quite well, for he confessed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. If we are Christians, then we understand these things at least in principle, but we always have to remember that it is often the good things that present the greatest danger. It is one thing when God told Abraham to cast out Ishmael in Genesis chapter 21 since Ishmael wasn't the son of promise. and Ishmael really came about through a fleshly scheme. But it is another thing when God told Abraham to lay Isaac on the altar. Isaac was the son of promise, the one who would carry the Abrahamic covenant forward to the next generation. Isaac is manifestly a good gift from the Lord to Abraham. But we must never forget that the Lord always retains a rightful claim on every gift he gives to us. Perhaps the Lord has given you a gift and you know it came from his generous hand. Perhaps the Lord worked a a healing miracle in your body. Perhaps the Lord gave you a spouse or a child when you had given up hope. Perhaps the Lord blessed your some effort with remarkable success. Perhaps you had a burden from the Lord, a dream, a vision, a passion, something like that, and you saw Him bring it to fruition. Perhaps the Lord brought you into a very fruitful season of ministry and you got to thinking that you'd like to camp out there for the rest of your life. But then the Lord comes to test you, to prove you, to reveal what's in your heart. There's nothing you have that you haven't received. There is nothing you have that isn't on loan to you from the Lord. There is nothing you have that you have an absolute right to. And the Lord Lord comes and tells you to give it up. Lay it down, let it go, or he simply comes and takes it away. The gift is removed. The cancer returns. The loved one dies. The relationship disintegrates. The business fails. The dream is shattered. Ministry becomes a dry and barren wilderness. And the whole thing is a test. Do you fear God because of the good things He can put into your lap? Or do you fear God because He alone is worthy of your complete trust and devotion no matter what? Sometimes the obedience that the Lord wants to see in us is the obedience of letting go, of relinquishing our grip, of surrendering that thing or that person or that aspiration. For some of you, this might be the application you need to reckon with today. Quit trying to hold on to something that the Lord has told you to surrender. Ultimately, the thing that the Lord requires of you is you, a surrendered you, all that you are. The call to put his beloved son on a literal altar to slay him was an awesome demand placed upon Abraham. And that specific demand will never be placed upon you, but each and every one of us is called to put our own self on the altar of unqualified devotion to the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. The fourth verse of the hymn, Trust and Obey, hits the nail on the head. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay, for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. For the second application, 
Let's consider the lesson about worship. If we would truly walk with God, then we must worship Him through the sacrifice that He provides. In Genesis 22, the question isn't whether Abraham will worship the Lord through a burnt offering. The only question is whether the burnt offering will be Isaac or a substitute. Graciously, the Lord provides a ram in Isaac's place. The ram dies, but Isaac lives. The Lord's provision of a substitutionary sacrifice in Genesis 22 becomes a springboard for something much bigger. Abraham named Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Now, I don't know about you, but I would like to go to the place that is called the Lord will provide in order to receive the Lord's provision. This place has an abiding significance for hundreds of years later. The Israelites were saying, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God's provision of a sacrifice is to be found in a certain place, namely on the mount of the Lord, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. Many hundreds of years later, after the Lord provided a ram for a burnt offering in Isaac's place, the Lord provided burnt offerings and peace offerings in the same place in order to turn away his wrath from Israel. The Lord sent a plague upon Israel and tens of thousands of Israelites died. A sacrifice needed to be made in order to avert the plague and King David made it. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. 1 Chronicles 21, verses 26 and 27. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Do you know what happened next in that place? The temple. A few years later, David's son Solomon built the temple in that place. 2 Chronicles 3.1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The temple, God's appointed house and God's appointed place, was the place of provision, the place of sacrifice, the place where God would meet with his people in mercy. Many of us are familiar with 2 Chronicles 7.14. A wonderful promise to God's covenant people who have lost their way. You know, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, you know that. It's right out there in the entranceway. Beautiful verse, but we take it out of context. Listen to verses 12 to 16. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Listen to this. 2 Chronicles 7, 12-16, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, the temple. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. The emphasis on this place and this house is crucial. Woe to us if we ever think that we sinful people can ever make an appeal to God for mercy 
without regard for the place of sacrifice, the place where he has promised to see and hear and forgive and heal. For not just anywhere, but on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Is it mercy and grace, forgiveness and renewal that you seek from the Lord? Then meet him where he has promised to meet you in his temple. Now at this point, someone might ask, do I need to make a pilgrimage to the mount of the Lord? Yes, as a matter of fact, but not in the way you might think. The temple on Mount Zion, its priesthood and sacrifices, was always intended to be a preview of the ultimate priest who would make the ultimate sacrifice very nearby, the temple. And so when the time was right, God the Father sent his son, his only son, his beloved son, Jesus, to be the perfect atoning sacrifice, his body broken and, and, and blood shed for the sins of his people. The father chose and consecrated his son to accomplish all that the temple had previewed. The perfect sacrifice took place in close proximity to where the other sacrifices took place on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Thus the father transferred the promises associated with the temple from the temple to the person of his son. Therefore, the mount of the Lord finds consummate fulfillment at Mount Calvary, where God the Father did not withhold his only son, but gave him up for us all. Though we must come to God with repentant and surrendered hearts, that was the discipleship lesson, we dare not come to God on the basis of our own righteousness. On the basis of our own righteousness, it shall not be provided. On the basis of our own wisdom, it shall not be provided. On the basis of our own track record, it shall not be provided. On the basis of our own good works, it shall not be provided. On the basis of our own productivity and fruitfulness, it shall not be provided. If you would worship God rightly through the sacrifice that he requires and provides, which cleanses us from all sin and satisfies God's justice and establishes us in peaceful fellowship with God forever, then you must look to Mount Calvary, for there and there only it shall be provided. Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb who will die in Isaac's place? Where is the Lamb who will turn away God's wrath against a sinful nation? Where is the Lamb who will take away your sin? Where is the Lamb whose shed blood will guarantee the fulfillment of all of God's promises? Where is the Lamb? Behold, Jesus Christ. God's Lamb, who made peace through his blood and who died so that you might live now and forever as a beloved participant in his everlasting kingdom of grace. As we come to our closing hymn in just a moment, I want to call attention to the fact that this hymn was deliberately chosen to reflect both lessons the discipleship lesson and the worship lesson, for the hymn celebrates the grandeur of the sacrifice of Christ, but then tells us the only proper and fitting response. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Brothers and sisters, let's worship our holy God 
through the perfect sacrifice that He has provided. If you have come to service this morning with an acute awareness of your need for mercy, forgiveness, restoration, or strength, don't reach out to God in some kind of generic and vague manner. Go to the Lord of the cross. Go to the holy mount, Mount Calvary, and plead the blood of God's Lamb and lay hold of blood-bought mercy, blood-bought forgiveness, blood-bought restoration, blood-bought strength and grace for every conceivable need. And then, in response to God's gracious and incomparable provision, let's all of us be totally abandoned to God's call upon our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing us with everything that we need in the place where you promised to provide it through Jesus Christ. Amen.